From the tippity top of the morning. Hello out there, uh, born to Rome fans. Uh, I have the prev- I have the privilege and the pleasure uh, of being joined by Mr. John Goodmanson, lovely human being, uh, who is a record uh, engineer producer from the Seattle, Washington area. And uh, I would just first like to thank you for being on this. Thank you very much for. Uh, Sitting on the old, uh, the old beige the machine. Couch. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And uh, fantastic couch, by the way. I think uh, that's a pretty good studio it's, couch. It's, it's a nice, not like particularly gross or anything. No, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, could be a lot worse. I've slept on worse. Most, uh, yes, a lot of bad studio couches out there, folks. Yeah. Um, so, if we're kind of looking at your uh, your occupation from a, a, a general overview. Um, how would you kind of describe or how do you comfortably view uh, your occupation in, in terms of the balance of the engineer slash producer role? Well, I tend to make rock records for younger bands, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I come from being a recording engineer and beyond like the technical part that is the engineer part, um, I uh, produce records, which yep. I guess makes me sort of responsible for the overall sound um the analogy a lot of people do is like like a movie director is like the producer of a record and the cinematographer is like the engineer the engineer i like that analogy a lot of times i do both i mean budgets being what they are yes um, it's pretty easy for me to do both so what with napster and everything <laughs> what with, with the napster yeah and the kids and the internet and yeah yeah, so I mean, it's yeah, it's radically changing. I do um, a lot of mixing out of my studio in my house mm. um, as well. So a lot of that stuff, I never get to meet anybody. I get emails and files sent to me, and then I send mixes back. And so uh, more and more, the situation is, um, especially for young bands, which has kind of always been my um, specialty. Um, in order to get a record made, they sort of have to have a DIY, somebody in the band is a recording nerd. Um, and so very often the records are not um, put together by somebody who makes records day in and day out. And so then um, the mixing gets a little challenging. I can imagine so. Just in terms of the way things are changing and the way people are, you know, uh, digesting music differently, is there kind of, is there a strange sense of futility to the idea that a lot of people are listening to music on ear pods and right off their phones and that's stuff a, when you're yeah, dedicating your time a, to. And that's a pretty recent, like five to 10 year, well, probably more like five years. Yeah. Where you just kind of sort of give up on like the hi fi approach hmm. on anything. And not really because that's, you know, that's what bands like and that's what people who do what I do. Yes. Like you want to make a record that sounds beautiful and there's lots of ways to make a record sound beautiful, but that so much stuff is evaluated by how it competes coming out of a phone speaker yeah. is, a, is a real bummer. Yeah. And, and there's some crazy compromises I've noticed recently uh, for streaming services that a lot of like big pop music and current like hip hop um, is – 
put together in such a way that there's not a whole lot of um, like high end information interfering with the vocal and stuff because the streaming algorithms make all of that just sound like swirly noise. Interesting. Um, so yeah, there's a definitely, a, at least in the States, like a um, also a real instrumentally stuff is really super lean because it's sort of like the streaming doesn't seem to be able to convey like complex lush recordings like, yeah yeah which is a, yeah that's a weird it's a weird uh people compromising and mixing for what's the lowest out. common denominator yeah. yeah it's like a drag strange strange times yeah um so l l let's just go back to kind of the uh your kind of more formative years in terms of uh, the development of your craft. And you, you mentioned earlier that you were, you basically were living in the Seattle area in the year 1990, which is, you know, commonly referred to as the year before punk broke. And I just kind of wanted to get a sense uh, from you uh, retrospectively, what that was like to be in that atmosphere. Was there a sense that something important was happening there or was it, uh, was there a sense that was it kind of simply a sense that no, there's just, a, there's just a great, some great music happening here. Or was it like, man, there's some cool bands happening here, but there's a lot of shit also at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was funny. It was um, because Seattle was a little bit off like, a lot of bands would skip Seattle because it was too far out of the way. So it, it was like its own little weird incubator. So mm. there was, there were a lot of bands, but, but all the venues were pretty much tiny. Like all the ones you think of as big giant bands, like when they would play in Seattle, it'd be to like 150 people. Oh, maybe. really? Yeah. And there was, a, there were, and it was basically like, you know, three bars in town that all of those bands played at, like Nirvana and Soundgarden and then, Mother Love Bone and all that stuff. It was underground until, until it just went bananas. Yeah, and sub up, like right around then was, well, I don't know if it was then or a few years later, seemed to be struggling a lot. So the local label thing wasn't really happening. It wasn't a massive force the way we might think of it as. Yeah, I think that I think maybe a few years before, um, with like doing like single of the month stuff and their compilations and then putting out like EPs for everybody. But then when bands started signing to major labels, they weren't able to compete, I guess, with that. Yeah. But I think I, it seemed like the first one out of the gate was Soundgarden. Soundgarden. Signing to a and m yeah. And then everybody was kind of freaked out by that. And then everybody got super freaked out by, by the success of Nirvana, for sure. Yeah. You had an early experience when you were working at your local, was it your local college? Oh, yeah, college radio station. College radio station. And what what uh, college radio station was that? Um, K-A-O-S in Olympia. Yeah. The Chaos. Evergreen, yeah. Yes. Evergreen State College. We would have bands on all the time. And so would you assist in, were you kind of a spectator to that or did you have something to do on the technical side? I would I would mix the bands and then I had a radio show that was like sort of new releases. Cool. And I was in a, a crazy band called Danger Mouse. Nice. Uh, with Donna Dresch, who's there's a recently reunited Team Dresch tour and a few new songs. Um, and we had back to back radio shows. So we had four hours on Monday night or something. Mm -hmm. And that was enough time to get a band in and set them up and talk to them and then have them play live on the air, which I thought was. I think I thought it was more interesting than it probably was hmm. most times to listen to. <laughs> was that, yeah. Those things can go either way. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
was that more or less your first experience mixing uh or did you did you I start around so. yeah i mean but, you know i did humble four track stuff yep. for like high school and and other bands in high school and stuff too and i was going to college to really i went to that school because they had recording studios I see. and that's that's all i wanted to do and the station had pretty limited um resources as far as actually miking up a band in a, okay. a really crummy little room at that point they've expanded now to where they're pretty fancy yeah it's surprising because olympia is a is right in between portland and seattle mm-hmm. so it's kind of an easy spot for bands that are on the road to, to hit stop. without and having it, to get all the way to well or just because they're on their way I see. but we were on on monday night so it's kind of a night off so yeah so they would just stop in and play which is fortuitous. Yes. And, you know, not to get too kind of heady about it, but was there something that um, that drew you to just, you know, having that clear path so young is that I want to uh, be involved in recordings? Was there, was, there, was there a moment or was there just a fascination with Sonics or? Yeah, it was kind of, bull- I mean, I, I played and was in bands, but I was always like a little uh, obsessive with the technical side. I see. Like a giant Beatles nerd. Yeah. All that stuff. So yeah, that made it a lot about records yes. and less about live performance. And I see. In the Northwest, you couldn't really see a rock band until you were twenty-one because of the because bands would only play in bars, really. So you your your relationship with music was close to exclusively through just recordings, basically. Yeah, not I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So you that's that's very interesting. I I didn't uh, it 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 sometimes doesn't compute in my brain that uh, that. You know, I although the liquor license is twenty one, that, that that means that most shows you just can't even go to yeah. until you're basically an adult. Unless you're going to like and you know, when I was a kid it would be hair bands and yeah. stuff coming through. So I wasn't really wasn't really worth checking out anyway. You're not spending all your money to go see some hair band in an arena or whatever. To go see a very tired Brett Michaels uh right. do his best. That yeah, that wasn't really my universe. And so on uh, this chaos radio station, you had uh, what was basically a kind of proto version of, of Nirvana one night. Yep. And yeah, one what night were they then? They were called Skid Row. Skid Row. <laughs> had to change their name. Yeah. And they hadn't yet signed a sub pop and they played a lot of like the first record. Bleach? Yeah. And the seven inches and stuff like the shocking blue cover that yep. they did. And, but they were straight out of Aberdeen with the drummer from Aberdeen. So it was myself and Donna Dresch that had the radio shows back to back and we were in the band together. And she was like, you like their band better than our band, don't you? <laughs> They're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> they got some pretty good songs. They got some pretty good songs. <laughs> there might be um, something to these guys. Yeah, these guys might have a future. What were your kind of impression? Like, I mean, obviously um, you probably did this for a lot of bands, but was there anything, you know, that in retrospect that was that was different about that band or that made any kind of lasting impression on you or? I mean, right at that moment, I, I think the songs were definitely a cut above, but that was sort of hard to know right then. Cause they, they fit in with a whole slew of kind of rock oriented touring punk bands. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, they were less metal than a lot of the stuff that was happening in Seattle. Like sub pop had this black Sabbath vibe that, you know, so there was Soundgarden and um, like Green River, and and then there were there were a whole lot of bands on Sub Pop that were sort of that were not that great, like um, Blood Circus, and like it was a little doomy, and yeah. Um, so Nirvana was more like a band from Olympia, 
And Olympia was into like what you would now say is like super twee indie okay. kind of stuff because K Records was from there with Beat Happening and Calvin put out a lot of records. I see. And it, and it was sort of internationally the way he would release stuff. Wow. So, so he had almost like a larger vision. Yeah. Um, and Sub Pop seemed really regional to Seattle, but I think at the time I probably didn't know how um, Sub Pop was getting to like the UK in particular right mm. around then with um, journalists and stuff. Yeah. So, so I didn't perceive them to be as cool and international, but I think they actually were. They were just kind of more metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a different kind of local reputation. Yeah. Just dirty metal. Just dirty dudes. metal. Yeah. yeah. Chugging. <laughs> chugging till the cows come home. Chugging drop deep, which is not like Nirvana didn't have that. No. But but they were more like, you know, Beatles obsessed or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. There was there was there was uh some complexity and uh some eclectic elements to their sound. Was there any a, a time where you kind of, uh, where, you know, the national um, sensation around grunge became somewhat annoying to be in Seattle? Did that ever? Well, Seattle's a real, like, it's got a small town, especially back then, had a small town vibe. Everybody knew each other. So, it, and it's got a little bit of like this weird ghetto mentality where like if you admit that you are interested in like success or popularity or anything like everybody in town just you know it was a big anti-industry anti anti-everything anti i mean it was like kind of that was the the thing that they grabbed from the punk concept of it and mm -hmm. then like the big thing with sub pop was sort of combining that with like sabbath and zeppelin and making like a punk metal hybrid mm. and the other thing that sub pop did was they presented themselves with a really specific graphic presentation and at that point a sound presentation that that kind of made seattle happen mm. like there wouldn't have been an identity for seattle if if they hadn't have been really specific with their with the whole package with what they were doing yeah but then things got weird like i guess i graduated college in 19 went up to seattle and i was just starting to work in a like a really big studio in town that did back then studios the nice studios would have to do advertising to pay the bills yeah so it was all day advertising and then at night you could do make records and it kind of felt like we were just missing the boat because stuff was blowing up just super crazy oh yeah european mtvs running around to all the clubs and a lot of silly stuff was happening yeah um, and people were showing up like, like my buddy Barry um, came in from going up to get up the street to get lunch, and he was like, "Dude, you never believe what I just saw. Like, this van pulls up with Colorado plates, and they open the side, and out jumps a rock band, all wearing flannel, and they proceed to start rocking out on the sidewalk. Like, they just drove into town, like, to get signed, basically." Wow. Just like a, a startup grunge band. <laughs> and weird, I mean, you know, like Alice in Chains was a poofy hair spandex yeah. band. Yeah. And then Soundgarden got their record deal and Alice in Chains went and bought flannel shirts and mm. signed as a grunge act, which was always like, was always, and Seattle all, also before all that happened did have a pretty big like spandex metal 
scene in the north end of town and on the east side of town where the rich kids were, there was a lot of really crappy spandex, permed hair yeah. stuff going down. Yeah. A lot of fancy haircuts at that side of town. A lot of suburban, crappy metal, yeah. It's funny because Seattle's a little bit of a backwater. But back then it was. It's I suppose it's more cosmopolitan now. Mm. But, Do you yeah. think, and, and you know, you've mentioned before that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you have an experience also with Soundgarden? Gosh, a, a little bit. Um, really good friend of mine, Steve Fisk, used to do like a 12-inch uh, remix for yep. every record with them. So I worked on a... I have one or two of those with him. Yeah, um, but that was that was about the extent of my recording stuff with them. But I, I grew up with the the bass player band. Like we went to high school. Yes, same graduating year of high school and stuff. And he, I guess he joined kind of late. They had a couple bass players before him. Before but, Ben Shepard, yeah. yeah. Um, I think actually, just off the top of my head, I think I just confused uh, Soundgarden with was it Allison Chains that you one of the Seattle bands? Did you do a, a demo session with? Uh, I. Sat in for a day, Alice of Change. Yes, demos. that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. And they were all fine. Was it in the kind of <laughs> middle or later career? Or Yeah, I guess the middle. And they were just doing like a writing session. And um, they had the bass player from Ozzy's band, who was a super sweet guy, this guy Mike Inez, mm-hmm. um, who was from L.A. So you kind of would have expected that he would have an attitude and, and he was already like pretty famous but he was super nice and down to earth and then the other dudes in Alice of Chains were kind of hardcore hicks from the sticks from the yeah. sticks hardcore <laughs> hicks from the sticks is a great but phrase just just that metal vibe like the super macho yeah 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 like bare chest attitude you know yeah it's just like whatever man was it necessarily like a you know a productive day or did was it was it more was it one of those kind of it, I think it was um, at that point really frustrating for well, like Jerry would write all the songs, including the vocals, mm-hmm. and then they would just wait around for Lane to for show Lane up. For Lane to show up, yeah. So yeah, it's probably an excusable attitude when they're just that frustrated that they can't. They're ready to go, and their guy is just off. You can't. Yeah. Uh, he was in a dark place. Yeah. I guess that's, uh, you have, you, I mean, even if it's just kind of dabbling, you've had quite a bit of experience basically with the entire scene as it were, as, at, as it kind of progressed. Well, it's, it's like a small town. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So everybody kind of knows everybody and, and then it kind of turns over from like the early nineties stuff. And then there's like a second wave of indie stuff and death cab for cutie did really yeah. great. And, uh, now you got Macklemore or not, not exactly now, but yeah. A few years ago. Yeah. That was a funny one. Macklemore, baby. <laughs> Who is, a, by all accounts, just the sweetest guy in the world and had no idea that that would happen and then had a giant top 40 song. I met that guy in Germany, Macklemore. Yeah? Yeah, we played the same festival. He was really nice. Talked to him for a little bit. The thing is, I mean, they're, you know, they made all that stuff just themselves, like him and Ryan Luce with a laptop. No funny business you know it's macklemore's on macklemore records dude <laughs> like can't That's front so on that sick yeah <laughs> like and now it's yeah songs the nba theme and yeah fifa theme or whatever gotta and respect that, it i mean that song is the thrift shop song in particular is a jam and i used to bag on macklemore all the time because there's this part of seattle hip-hop 
and I don't know if it's because it's a small town or because it doesn't have a history for hip hop, but it's just like all the songs were like these mid tempo reminiscing about going to the ball games back in the day and it just was like all this like really putting me to sleep dude right it's completely not what i go to hip-hop for no so and he had done a few songs like that that were on the radio in seattle and and uh seattle alternative radio went hard for like the local hip-hop scene for a while and i was just like man it just is not it didn't have an edge or whatever yeah um wasn't hitting it wasn't hitting, but there's a, there's a couple pretty great things like Shabazz Palaces and stuff was pretty mm. crazy and weird and so. And shortly before that, um, we have what is now known as the new metal uh, era, <laughs> and uh, you know I'm not, you I'm guys, not gonna. You guys are too <laughs> obsessed with the new metal era. We got a little bit of a thing for the new metal <sighs> era, but I just you know I'm definitely not gonna I'm not gonna pry too much. But I just want to know, John, is there any kind of do you have a kind of like couple best worst moments uh of uh most memorable moments of that entire kind of brief flash in the pan uh that was new metal so so in the early 2000s i had a manager who paired me up with a long time huge like record producer this guy steve thompson who did like the corn follow the leader record and stuff and i would engineer records with him and then we'd co-mix him and we worked on a bunch of really expensive records. So I would wind up in these situations that seemed like very odd situations for me to be in, especially not being like a metal dude. Yeah. So I do remember being backstage at a big Limp Bizkit show in New York and Steve nudged me and he was like, dude, is that Carmen Electra? And I was like, dude, I saw her on the on the Howard Stern show one time and she's gorgeous and this lady looks pretty rough. <laughs> it turned out it was. Good. It was Carmen Electra. <laughs> yeah. is, that's not a cool thing to say. You shouldn't say that about anybody. But Oh, it's all good. I mean, but only it was three weird. people are going to listen to this. So dude. that was, yeah, there was a lot of very strange things that went down. And because the music business was consolidating and also the people that were running it seemed clueless as to what was working and what wasn't working. So there was a whole lot of money flowing to really terrible hip hop metal kind of stuff that was happening at the time. Then there was a lot of money going to acts that you never heard from again. Yeah. Was this a kind of, was there, you know, a parallel kind of thing happening with the grunge boom when something strikes and the corporate people that are responsible for these contracts don't understand what the appeal is, but are just basically trying to bet on as many horses as possible to see I mean, what, it, it what definitely takes. was like, and that's the first time I witnessed that thing go down and somewhere like uh Rolling Stone did some wrap up of like the millennium and all the different like rock eras or whatever mm -hmm. and they said a thing that i thought was really striking was like it was it was crazy how fast like grunge hit and was like an alternative to what was mainstream at the time and then how short a period of time it was before it was completely co-opted by a corporate version of so you started having you know collective soul and bush <laughs> well and i mean bush wasn't even close to as bad as it was gonna get like, no it's true you know, like they whatever whatever you say about them being posers you know they had songs and yeah sounded good and like there was some really terrible stuff that was that passed off 
you know. Silver chair? <laughs> so apparently silver chair after their grunge hit from when they were like kids, there's a whole like bunch of silver chair records that are like Radiohead Beatlesque records. Really? I've, I've never listened to them, but there are people that are hardcore silver chair fans that talk about like it's like a different band. Basically. Oh, really? Because they were, you know, they were tiny. What were they, like 18 or Yeah, 19 they're kids, right? Yeah. So they had a different identity maybe later. I don't know if it's really that good or if people just have a reverence reference, reverence for it. Yeah. 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 You know, we've already kind of touched on this right now, but what's it like to kind of, you know, watch everything change with, you know, beginning with, you know, music available online and the way that modern music – in. Uh, enjoyment is is just kind of shifting so quickly with streaming and different platforms is it kind of do you think that things are speeding up to some extent in terms of the rate of change or is this um do you think it's able to you you're able to kind of see where things are going um or is it just is it is it too dizzying to kind of know where we're at right now i know that's kind of a uh, obtuse question, but uh, give me a sense of where you're feeling, how you feel about, you know, how where things are going. I mean, I feel like it's actually been, I feel like right now is actually super awesome and interesting time for music and and for young people that want to make music because there's a lot of ways in. Like when I was a kid, you would never imagine you could go into tour Europe. Like that just seemed like a completely far away dream mm. or that you would even be able to make a record because that the whole like manufacturing and distribution was all locked up in major label world. Mm -hmm. And the kind of advice you would get was, was always like, well, you're going to have to move to LA or New York. Like there isn't anything happening anywhere else. And it's like, that's actually totally not true. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it busted wide open. But then it's like the, the music part of it is kind of on fire and awesome. Like it always is when young people are, making new kinds of things. Um, the business part of it is like the way the change is happening. It's, I don't know, I think it's pretty bad for anybody who wants to take themselves more seriously than a hobby. Yeah, um, the economics. Yeah, the economics of getting paid for, and it's just a little bit unfair that these giant software corporations are taking in like literally billions of dollars, which the music business never was the, as profitable as like the tech business. They never really made that crazy of money, even though they would like put the impression that they were rolling large or whatever. It turned out like none of those guys were making like bank, like the tech companies are making bank off of exploiting content that they don't properly pay for. Yeah. Like YouTube's rates that they pay for, you know, music that gets streamed on YouTube is just, it's ridiculous. Like, like you have to be in the millions before you see any significant money. So, so if somebody wants to make a sustainable, like not live in your mom's basement or not forever tour in a van, sleeping on people's floors. And but a lot of the bands I work with have to have some sort of successful touring apparatus for the economics to make sense, Yeah, which is fair enough from how they get compensated by their fans or whatever. But at a certain age, it's physically difficult to go play every major city in America sure. and haul your own stuff and be in a van and not be able to eat very well. So you're kind of like, there's a level that doesn't make economic sense right now. That's I think it's 
sad for that to not be a transition that a lot of people can make. Can make, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> but their stuff is kind of shaking out a little bit. Like I asked um, Brett Gerwitz from Epitaph, like, you know, how much physical product they move anymore. I think I was in LA like the end of last year or something, and they basically sell no physical product. And he said it took a couple years for the money to start coming in from the streaming. So there was like a transition period where suddenly there was no money being made. And then now things are starting to catch up where it doesn't, it makes about 10% of what retail sales used to make. There's about 10% of that, that streaming is bringing in. Hmm. Um, but then depending on the artist and from an artist perspective through the nineties and early 2000s, like if you were a local band that was doing pretty good and you got like a major label deal and even if you had a minor hit, you pretty much saw no money from sales. Hmm. Um, and there would be between recouping ridiculous advances and creative accounting on the part of yeah. the labels, <laughs> like the artist never was making money from sales in that sort of mid-level artist category. And it would be, it would be a couple hits in before a, even a big artist would really see any money. Really? And then the money's a lot smaller than you would imagine that it would be. So, so back then everybody was doing the same thing of making their money on the road, but there was at least a possibility that you could wind up with some sort of middle class lifestyle. Yeah. Which now it seems like that's more remote than it used to be. Yeah. Slim pickings out there. <laughs> well, and it just it makes it like so all music has to be for seventeen year olds or fifty year olds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because like the kids get what the kids get always because they're trying to sell them other stuff besides music. Yeah. And, and then old fogies still buy tracks and CDs and have nice stereos and stuff. But there's yeah. the whole middle thing of like people that, that are streaming. Being, yeah. They're not being given quality product. It's true. In my humble opinion. But there's also a bazillion really great things too. And it's yes. not an easy way of finding, like I get most of the stuff I get from other bands bringing in like their favorite thing or, and there's so many crazy micro scenes all around the world that are sort of germinating and making super cool stuff that you can't believe how cool it is. But it, for the average music consumer, I would assume that's really hard to find. Maybe it's not though. Maybe you just maybe I don't know my search terms well enough. Maybe they've all got it under control and everything's fine. It sucks when people don't. I mean, like you know, Spotify and uh, Apple Music and the major streaming things are kind of. Uh, I mean, the major thing that I remind myself about them too is that issues with kind of streaming rates, you know, you know, preaching to the choir, but at the same time, for a little while, it looked like no one was going to pay for music with the whole the file sharing thing when that exploded. And but, So there was this weird thing because I'm sort of punk rock libertarian guy. Yeah. So I'm like, look, I would explain to the major label people who were supposed to be like worked on a couple records and you would talk to their internet guy and I'd just be like, dude, as long as kids have more time than money, they're going to get their stuff for free. Yeah. And if, even if you can manage like the digital rights management type stuff. So even if you really totally have control of that, like one kid in high school will buy the record and give it to, you know, copy it for all his friends or whatever. Yeah. Like even if, no matter what technology you come up with, they're going to, yeah. they're going to do 
that. So now you're going to sell one copy of a record per high school in America or whatever. So yeah. just give up on that and figure out some other way to, to monetize it, which they're only just starting to figure out. But there's a bunch of crazy stuff about the way they've changed copyright law, at least in the States, the last few years that is sort of not at all favorable to the artists, but at least they're pretending to try and give them a cut. Hmm. But then a lot of the definitions of the cut that they're getting are based on the numbers that the streaming service provides and not – even if you're a completely self-contained artist, you don't get to set the rate. Really? Which seems – like if you're the one making the content, you should be able to – Yeah. But they changed it I think like 2009. I've only just recently read up on this where if you've released a song anywhere, then any of the streaming services can – put it out but they have to what they're supposed to do legally is give you a an accounting every month for how many plays you're getting and how much you're supposed to get paid which is based on their income not on any sort of set number you know formula so that's it's super weird that you can't just opt out like billy bragg or fugazi or something yeah because um, you know if, if you want to not use their system, there should be some way of doing that. But that's not part of this agreement about streaming and copyright and stuff. It's very strange. It's super weird. But all of the streaming services never built the infrastructure to account for all the plays. And that's too, too expensive. It doesn't fit their business model. So they have turned all that stuff over to third parties to sort out. They're just like, you guys deal with it. So they're not able to keep up with their legal obligation of informing you how many plays you got on Spotify last week. Interesting. Which should be easy. It's freaking computers. Yeah, well, right? I, like, it, it's it's not computing in my mind why that <laughs> isn't just built into the... Right, but they didn't... I've talked to labels about this too, where um, it can be hard for labels to, for instance, provide back into producers because the way their accounting is set up doesn't involve that. And if it's not built into that, then it becomes difficult to to make that happen on a quarterly basis or whatever. So I guess I believe them. I'm not really sure I believe them. Yeah. The other thing that's crazy is it's a black box with any of those companies how many times you're actually getting played. There's no way to audit that. Yeah, it's so, all... You know, they need a little more revenue. It's like it's, it's like it's like video slot machines, where people were surprised that they were programmed to favor to not be random. Those guys were smart enough to do it just by a little bit, but it turned out when the gaming commission like investigated that it wasn't completely random. It was like, well, of course it's not. Yeah, like, you know, what do you think they're gonna? The do? game is rigged, kids. <laughs> and so, streaming services, same thing. Like this quarter doesn't look as great. Well, isn't there something we can do about, you know, skewing the accounting a little bit so we can make our numbers look a little better? But mm -hmm. and because it's been the wild west for all that stuff, it's it's um, it's all shaking out kind of now, I guess. Where do you think streaming is heading? Do you think that th there'll be some sort of artist union that demands more for royalties? Do you think that, that something like that will be properly organized and implemented? Or do you think it's, uh, it's I just think too it's, tough to say? Yeah. And all the m big money interests. The The thing that's crazy is like the the music industry did a terrible job of like 
seeing how things were going to shake out yeah. and like adapting. Like they didn't do anything to adapt to all this. Whereas the film industry has watched the music industry fail miserably on all this digital stuff. And so they've been a lot smarter. With monetizing? Yeah. Getting ahead of it? Yeah. Getting ahead of it and getting like the rights sorted out and everything else. I don't know if that will retroactively start applying to music business stuff or if it's just a bit of a lost cause. Hmm. I mean, you know, there's still the kind of bands that I work with, you know, sell a lot of vinyl or, you know, a lot of like sort of personalized fan club special products or whatever like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you can at Etsyifies your band and do pretty well with that. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> if, you, if you want, I've had that. Uh, Tone chip shirt's still available, kids. The That crazy goth emo band called Aiden, he would blow through uh, 58, SM58 capsules all the time on tour. Yeah. And then they would like donate those to like the top people in the fan club. Oh, really? Yeah. And all those kind of fans really want is something that the singer has actually touched. And touched with his mouth is probably even better. People are strange. <laughs> so, you know, if you can... You got to find a way. Yeah. Is the key. I think it's, you know, I I, uh, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think that uh, the main... In this position, you're forced to have some kind of optimism The uh, to... Uh, to be able to kind of uh, weather through it. But, you know, it's equally, I find it equally as confusing and just kind of watching things change. And, uh, but I definitely think the most important thing to do is that, that you basically have to do is that regardless of how much an artist you consider yourself, you've got to learn how to hustle uh, mm. to some degree. Which is kind of, then every once in a while, I'm like, well, that's what it's been like since the 50s. Yeah. You know, pop it's, music has oh, been yeah. kind of terrible since the 50s. And cop, it's true. You know? So it's it it's kind of the same as it's always been, but it's also it's a little bit all consuming. Like bands with a fewer number of members, it's kind of other bands that are starting out that I've worked with that have a lot of members. There'll be one guy who posts video content, and another guy who answers all the email, and another guy on the blogs, and then there's a couple guys that actually write the songs. Hmm. And if you were in a band with just those two guys and one of the others, you'd never be able to keep up with your fans. And yeah, the kids that are rabid fans who are the ones making everything possible have come to expect like that their personal email is going to get answered, which is, you know, so the, the demands from the fan base are pretty intense hmm. and it makes it so people don't have time to write basically. Huh. But the most important thing is to just write. Have good songs, kids. Have good songs. Do your best. Have some good songs because there's so many, so many places for someone who's in that position to put their time. People forget to keep writing a lot of times. Oh yeah, you got to keep hammering on it. But then the, there's an upside where everything is global, and everybody can stay in touch globally. Yes, and you can collaborate with people from all over the world. Yes. So if that's part of your trip, like that's you know that's amazing. I think that you know one of the one of the misconceptions, and I'm. 
I mean, this is just from my perspective. I mean, one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people uh, in my generation of bands have, looking back on the past, they like to think that things were easier back then because they didn't have the streaming and all these things. But if you take the time to look at, um, to really delve into any era of music, you'll find that it's always been really fucking hard to make a living playing music or making any kind of art. And as you kind of pointed out, like at all points in history, uh, the, this kind of fantasy, unless you're a fucking genius, you don't get to just do your art. You basically, you have to find the way you need to, you need to give your art legs and you need to find ways of distributing it and, uh, basically making a living off of it. And that's not, the the world doesn't really necessarily owe you uh, a right. red carpet to that for sure you got to figure it out but i i think now one thing so it's a little sad that there's no longer the curtain up so that the artist or none of the process is nearly as mysterious for sure. as it used to be but the good thing of that is there's a lot of people who are big giant stars who will explain like no, I don't wake up in the morning with like new brilliant song in my brain. Like this is work. You have to sit down every single day. You know, it's like a like a writer or something. Or it's, yeah, it's a. It takes a fair amount of discipline, for sure. And it's good for kids to know that, and that yeah. it's not a free ride for anybody. No, um, your energy is better spent developing software. Yeah, <laughs> if you have any alternative to a music career. You should probably pursue that. Yeah, learn how to code, kids. <laughs> it's because it's, it's like, if you got any other good way to make a living that you can deal with, it's gonna be easier. In the uh, unless you just got to uh, pluck them strings. Yeah. No, it, I mean that's who winds up doing it is people that can't conceive of any other thing to do. I can't picture myself working at a bank. There's just no way. I have to do this. It's all I got, John. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. Like, right? Yeah. It's either that or like rich kids and they inevitably fall out of it as soon as they have to get in a van or something. Yeah. You'll think like, oh, those guys got such a break because they don't have to actually work for a living anyway, but they usually crash and burn. They wash the running. fuck out, yeah. dude. It's not for the faint of heart. No. You're going <laughs> to, kids, if, you, if you're thinking about starting a band, you're going to see some shit. And it's not all going to be good shit, but uh, you're going to see some shit. It gets ugly. It does get ugly. But uh, uh, that being said, rock and roll is the greatest thing that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ ever gave to mankind. <laughs> wow. All right. No, I'm just kidding. There's no whatever. Who whoever your whoever your guy is or your gal. Uh, the last thing I'd like just to, like to ask you about, kind of wind things down and on a positive note, any coronavirus tips? <laughs> Wash your hands. Wash your hands. I mean, as anyone who has ever had children knows, and also my folks were school teachers, so... They're on the front lines. It's always been, wash your damn hands. Wash your damn hands, kids. Because, uh, I mean, that takes care of like a whole lot. Wash your hands. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Seattle seems to have kicked it off for everybody else once again with the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> coronavirus and grunge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two things we've given to the United States of America. <laughs> Both of them equally um, <laughs> infectious and dangerous, I guess. Yeah. 
I think that's a good way to that's a good way to end off. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. John Goodmanson, and we'll do we'll do the coronavirus yeah. uh, handshake. That's how and, we do it. Uh, that's yeah. how we do it. That's how we do it. Thank you very much uh, from uh, Born to Rome, and uh, stay safe out there, kids.